the whole point of the music is to embody and reflect the theology and philosophy that we have. And a lot of times, most of the time, we're not there. And so we sing these songs so that it can be a starter for us to actually self-interrogate and move towards those kingdom ethics, which would be if we're singing about justice or we're singing about mercy or we're singing about whatever subject that we're singing about, realizing that like we are so full of it if we think that like, yeah, we're just, we're on the good side. Like, no, 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 no. The whole thing is always a point of self-interrogation. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. everyone. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, the Northeast Director and the Education Director. And with me is Ben Tapper out of our Indianapolis office. How are you doing today, Ben? Here and ready to rock. Excellent. Well, uh, interesting <laughs> you use that turn of phrase because we are talking worship, uh, which can sometimes mean music and stage presence and performance, i.e. rock. <laughs> <laughs> I had to laugh just because as soon as I said it, all I saw from you, Matt, was like a blank look. <laughs> Like, what is wrong with this man right now? <laughs> hey, but did you see how I recovered and, and knocked did. that back? Like a good you tennis did. match. You did. I'm impressed. Right back I'm at impressed. you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we're glad you're all back. This third episode of season three is going to be hinging upon or talking about worship, which was also part of episode two. So we're kind of doing a two episode run on the idea of worship and congregational life. And for this one, we had David Gunger, who's the associate pastor of a congregation in New York and also part of a band called The Brilliance, and just talking about his experiences with being someone who crafts the liturgy and the worship for their congregation. So Ben, thematically, I know that we did these episodes focused on worship, but I felt like this one kind of ranged a little bit far from that, or not far from that, but just branched out into some unexpected places. So typically we kind of have a topic, which worship is kind of the topic of this, but what struck you as kind of the main focus where we can kind of dive in and think about how we interface with congregations in Indiana around these issues? Yeah, you know, I think community building It's kind of a broad umbrella that I was thinking about as I was listening to or participating in the interview, actually. And that's where congregations are actively trying to do in Indiana, coming through out of in the midst of this COVID pandemic, having to reimagine what it means to build community, to reimagine what it means to regularly participate in a worship experience or even just a congregational experience. And so this idea of how do you keep people involved? How do you ensure that not only are the technology, hardware, and software pieces in place, but do we have the right 
people in place? Do we have the right practices, the right programs, the right aspects of service in place that are going to keep people engaged and help them feel like they are part of something larger than themselves? And that felt like what we were talking about in the interview that also reflects a lot of what I'm seeing or have seen in congregations that I'm working with. What would you say is true for you? Yeah, I think it's not only just post-pandemic related, but even pre-pandemic you know, perennial questions and issues we hear from congregations is, you know, volunteerism. How do we get people to volunteer? Mm-hmm. How do we build deeper community in our congregation? And, you know, some of the answers to that have been small groups and volunteer drives and spiritual gifts tests and things like that. But I think what's interesting is in the interview with David, you'll just hear kind of a different way of going about it. That Ben, you mentioned programs and systems and things like that. But in his language of talking about what they do, there really was an absence of that kind of language. And so I think it's an interesting shift from the way that we view the congregation as almost a corporate entity. And I mean corporate in the terms of business, that we view it as an organization in the sense of how we've viewed businesses and organizations in our culture for a while, but it's more of an organization in the root of the word, which is organic, right? That you're part of an organism. And I think that's kind of how David described things in the way that they did things in their congregation. Come on, etymology for the win. (laughs) Yes, etymology for the win. (laughs) Organic organism. I love it. I love it. I love me some etymology. (laughs) Uh, no, but I feel you. I feel you. And my 11th grade English teacher would be very pleased that I'm bringing up etymology right now. I didn't think I'd ever need to use it again. <laughs> but I mean, it's true. I've seen this happen in other congregations that I've been part of, especially outside of Indiana, but sometimes inside Indiana too, where they're adding different elements to a worship service that I think are designed to either bring someone's gifts to light that normally don't have a chance to shine or be integrated, and also to provide another way for people to engage with the materials of the service, with the themes of the service. And it sounds like in David's congregation, they're constantly looking for ways to integrate people, their gifts, their abilities, their desires, in, to your point, a very organic way. And that allows for a lot of creativity. It allows for a lot of opportunity to bring people into the fold and for constant transformation. And as we've learned, I'm going to come back to it, particularly these last 18 months, transformation is inevitable. Like we, we, don't, we don't get to run from it. We get to embrace it, try to drive it, but it, it's going to happen in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about the idea of transformation is even just a transformation of thinking about what you are as a congregation. I think we've moved from, you know, the Acts Church in the Christian world being, you know, people meeting in their homes, reading the letters of Paul, talking about, you know, what happened in the life of Jesus and how it impacts them into what we have today, which is, again, more of an organizational model where we learn about programs and we learn about people filling specific slots in terms of what you need for volunteers. You know, most often, I swear, every congregation you talk to, it's about volunteering for children's ministry, right? <laughs> like we need yes. more people yes. in, the, in the Sunday school programs or what have you. But thinking about transforming that model back into what does it mean that we are a group of human beings with our own identities, our own gifts, skills, and talents who come together and shaping the community around that rather than shaping it around what you think the organization or the institution needs to be. And so I think what folks will hear in the interview is clearly David's church has a lot of people who are very gifted and talented in the arts, 
But maybe that's not your congregation, but you may very well have people who are gifted educators in your congregation and their potential is untapped. Or you have people who are gifted in business administration and finance that you just haven't identified them and you're not using their skill sets. And so what does it mean for your congregation to really understand the strengths, talents, and skills and abilities of the people who come every week and then shaping the community around that? Yeah, I mean... I don't even have anything to add to that. I think that's just, yes, co-signed, officially co-signed. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think those are great questions for congregations to continue to hold and to have in mind as they're listening through this interview. And so we hope you've appreciated this conversation as much as we did. And with that said, here's David Gunger. Welcome back. And we are so excited to have with us David Gunker, who is the associate pastor at Good Shepherd Church in New York and also one half of the band The Brilliance. Thanks for being here, David. Thank you so much, Matt and Ben, for having me. Yeah. So actually, let me ask this. I probably should have asked you before. So the associate pastor role, are you the main worship leader or just involved in it? Yeah. And it's funny. They never call me associate pastor. I'm just one of the pastors at the church. I'm not the lead pastor. The lead pastor is Michael Rudzina. He started the church. I am one of the pastors. I help kind of with everything. The church is small enough to where if you've ever worked at a small to mid-sized church, you know that a lot of times you wear multiple hats. So I help officiate weddings. I help do youth sometimes. I've helped, you know, do all different types of pastoral roles. And then as well as I'm in charge of our Sunday morning kind of worship experience with the put together the liturgy as well as the music and help do a lot of different roles at the church. Luckily, since COVID, we've actually hired a couple of more people. It used to be only like three of us on staff and now there's about five. Got it. Got it. Thank you for that. Thanks for that clarification. So yeah, one of the things that I was curious about, I know that you describe the brilliance as protest music, and I was curious about how that intersects or how that comes into the development of worship in Good Shepherd in the congregational space, because I think we often view types of music used in congregational life or in churches as, you know, usually just the hymnals or just kind of the standard kind of worship songs. But I'm curious as to your thoughts on the space for the kind of music you create in the brilliance in the worship setting and how you see that intersection. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Matt. I think one of the things to maybe talk about why we would even call it protest music is where does it start from? What is it protesting? So for the brilliance, we try to create art that inspires empathy and That would be telling people stories who we feel like often their voice is not amplified. Everyone has a voice. There's no one who doesn't have a voice, but there are voices who we don't listen to. And so brilliance comes from a place of we have heard people's voices and we want to be able to tell stories that inspire empathy and love for our neighbor. Now, when you talk about that within the context of Good Shepherd in New York, I'm sent out from Good Shepherd to embody those values of loving your neighbor. You know, when you love your neighbor, you encounter the divine. When you meet the stranger, when you meet the the refugee, when you meet the, you know, all different types of things that a lot of times I've written about for the brilliance, those are coming from a place that our church embodies. 
And so you asked specifically about protest music. I had a song called Welcome to the Darkness that is specifically around around the idea of communities not listening to communities of color because of privilege. And so I wrote that for my community and sang it on a Sunday morning, and then it ends up becoming a brilliant song. Now, when you say that, it's not like, that's not the type of song that is a hymn that everyone join along and sing. (laughs) However, not all of the music has to be within our church context. Within our church context, the music is something that is art that leads us to a place of wonder or beauty or self-interrogation. It's getting us ready for the sacraments. That's why we gather. It's great to sing together and it's really fun, but that's not the main reason why we gather as a church. We gather as a church around the table. And so our music reflects that, reflects getting ready to eat with everybody, with the whole family. David, are there differences between how you conceptualize the music that you do publicly, externally through the brilliance and the music that you do in the worship within your congregation? And specifically, I'm wondering if the approach is the same, is the purpose the same? How are the approach and purpose different or similar depending upon the context that you are writing, performing, or creating that art? It's a great question. When the brilliance first started, it probably wouldn't be that different. However, it morphed into something that we felt like we wanted to get out of religious language while within the church context, you know, when I'm putting together our liturgy, usually it, there are rules that I put in place so that they can help me create. So, for instance, one of the first couple of songs that I'll sing, I always try to include a hymn that is like a hymn of praise. I don't easily write just like great praise music. So a lot of times I'll find hymns that have such amazing, rich history and reflection of theology that our church really resonates with. And so we'll use those. And then usually for our church, I try to stick to a lot of Trinitarian language for those hymns. And then I will write as well a lot, and I'll write quite a few songs for our church that are based around the Trinity and different things that will be around the mystery and beauty of God. And once again, I try to stick to the language that I would be using would be very Trinitarian when I write. And there are are reasons for that. And then usually within the service, following the, our church follows the lectionary. And so we, every week have readings from the Old Testament and new. And readings from the Old Testament and the Psalms, they go into some like (laughs) deep, heavy, humanitarian issues and and needs and it's messy and so from there that's a lot of times we'll all bring in different styles either covers of songs or i'll write songs that are not at all like praise and worship songs but it's more music that deals in the same way where a psalmist could say like where are you god Mm. is music that the questions and wrestles and deals with different sides of things that it does not have to just be in the box of like, now we all have to sing this. And that invites people into a place, I hope, of leaning into, we talk about our worship within our context for our congregation 
is not when they get together and sing, but it's their very lives and their very lives are also acts of prayer. So how do you pray? And we teach people how to pray and praying is not just celebratory, but it's actually mourning with those who mourn or it's interceding. And when you talk about interceding and doing that, you're actually trying to dive into listening to understand as well as self-interrogation and all kinds of different things that it should lead you to a place of repentance. And when I say repentance, I don't just mean I feel guilty, I need to say sorry, but repentance within scripture for how we understand it is originally repentance is like a reshaping of the mind. That's what the word actually means. And so when you say a reshaping of the mind, it's like a reshaping of your entire worldview of how do I see the world and know that possibly I don't see the full picture. And then within that, how can I see the picture better, more clearly? And in order to do that, I need to listen to those who see the world differently and then reshape my mind around a view that is centered around, you know, I'll use some religious jargon here, but like centered around themes of love and peace and joy and these fruits of the spirit that actually empower us to live and be a different type of people. Yeah, I really love the definitional understandings you have and thinking about the nature of the community as, it's like the community is central. And what you're doing in the elements of the gathering on Sunday are embodying, sharing, retelling kind of the meta-narrative of the story. And I think that's so different from sometimes how we can view how worship is done in a typical congregation, because it seems like a separate container that you have the worship and you have the sermon and you have, you know, what are the other elements of the service that you do for worship leaders out there and even senior clergy leaders out there who have somebody who does worship, how can you come together in a collaborative manner so that those things flow together and it's not siloed, it's not separate, but there really is a collaboration about the nature of the message, but also the humanity of the sacred text, the humanity of the people who are gathered there, and just how those things are woven together. How can you create kind of a synergy among the people who are doing the different aspects of a worship service? It's a really good question. I think on one end, there needs to be, as in any relation, well, one, relationally, let's just use that, that word first. You need to do it relationally. But two, in any relationship, there needs to be trust and there needs to be a sense of allowing people to express themselves and to be. And that's hard because if you think of that relationally, a lot of times I feel like pastors or artists or whatever it is, they want to do, as you alluded to, like their thing, like silo, and they want to be able to be them But then just as long as you don't get in my lane, I won't get in your lane. Or you get this thing where you try to be so collaborative that people lose their their self-expression in a certain way because they feel like they can't be themselves. They have to just conform into whatever is supposed to be the look or the style of the community. And so within that tension, we say that we try to develop artists and tastemakers and 
what we do is we actually commission. So for our liturgy, we're constantly trying to develop liturgists who can learn how to use their gifts to write for the church. So for instance, prayers of the people, we have journalists in the church, we have lawyers in the church, we have we have moms who are, you know, stay-at-home moms, but they're gifted writers. And what we do is we'll commission them to help write. And how we do that is we give them kind of signposts and if you would like almost like, hey, these are the things that we want to hit. So from a class standpoint, like here are what we pray for. We always pray for the church. We always pray for the world. And for those who are suffering, we always pray for the sick. We always pray for And there's kind of little things within the Book of Common Prayer, these themes that we pray for normally. However, we're going to let them based on the scripture that's being used. Sometimes people like to really, you know, they might base it around the scripture that week. They may base it around the time of year. If it's Mother's Day or Father's Day, as of recently, they're going to have a certain lens through it. They may do it through the lens of Juneteenth or through the lens of pride or through the lens of whatever it is of the season that we're going through. They can be creative as writers, except we have developed these little, if you would, the goals or the trajectories where we want to go as a community, as well as kind of like, hey, we're going to stick within these guidelines. And there's communication with that so that we can help edit if we need to. But for the most part, things like liturgy, things like call to worship, we do the same thing with our benedictions where people are writing. And then musically, obviously, and the same goes with we have a pretty large group of lay teachers who we help commission. So when I say commissioning artists, there's on one side of artists, we can think of craftsmen or craftspeople who are really good at a craft, meaning they might be a great writer, a great singer. They might be a great violinist. They might be a great, you know, whatever that is that they've worked a long time on. And then also people who are tastemakers who a tastemaker is someone that they can put words or music or even like creating environments that show us like where we're going, <laughs> where to go. They create this like, for lack of a better word, like a vibe. They know how to go like, okay, this is where we're, we're moving. So I think of people like that within our own context of like, we have filmmakers within our church. We have artists who paint and we have artists who, who do certain things that just are incredible. And this honestly goes towards hospitality as well. A huge part of like the feeling of a church and of like who we are is I think of families and people in the church who are like, Hey, we're going to get for this Sunday, a food truck out uh, on the front. And afterwards we're going to have a food truck and these certain things. And I know that sounds odd, but it creates this community environment that so speaks to like, oh my gosh, like the atmosphere here and everything that's going on is because someone was empowered and thought through to like, if we talk about being a place that welcomes people or we talk about a place that values art, well, then how are we empowering people to actually show that and do that? And so we have a lot of different artists that do that type of art and help curate our vibe or our sense of who we are and where we're going. So they have a more prophetic voice within their art. Can I just say, I appreciate 
the intentionality behind bringing in different aspects of your congregation and community and making them not only active participants in the worship experience, but also helping them shape and influence the communal worship experience. That's a a beautiful and an empowering thing. And I also want to say, it doesn't sound odd to have a food truck, you know, at worship or after worship, because food should be part of worship. I mean, as someone who loves food deeply, and I mean, I deeply love food. I affirm that food should be considered part of worship. It would enhance many a worship services if I knew there was a food truck right out back waiting for me. So I think y'all are onto something. I encourage Indiana congregations, see what you can do to make this happen locally. I might just roll up on a Sunday. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm also wondering, you know, I wrote down this word self-interrogation and it stood out to me because I don't know that I've ever heard a worship leader talk about that as a core tenet of the worship experience, right? And so I think it's beautiful. And I'm wondering if you had advice to offer to other worship leaders, maybe those from smaller congregations who don't have the artists and the tastemakers uh, on hand to readily contribute to shaping an experience, at least to the extent that you all do, how can they be intentional about incorporating this element of self-interrogation into the worship experience and specifically the musical aspect of the worship experience? And that's a great question. I think that one, as a worship leader and as a person that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say some like phrases that are going to be so cheesy. <laughs> We're ready for them. Let's go. <laughs> go for it. So I grew up with like being like, hey, before you can lead people into the presence of God, you have to like be there first. You know, you got to go to the Holy of Holies first. And man, I'm I'm just I'm not there anymore. Okay. However, I really do believe that when you are a worship leader and I don't ever really use worship leader anymore as a thing, it'd be like when you're directing music, when you're pastoring people, you really need to be authentic off stage and not just be a performer. And so what does that look like? It looks like if you're trying to do art that you're listening to people, are you listening to them off stage? Are you self-interrogating off stage? And the reason why I say that is because as an artist, like I'm not ever afraid to be like, Hey, I'm going to speak prophetically here. And so I'm going to take us to a place that's going to make people uncomfortable. I will tell them I'm about to make you very uncomfortable. But I do that because it makes me uncomfortable. And I say, hey, I'm going to take us to this place or I'm going to sing this song. or I'm going to do this and I'll use stories or I'll do things. And then afterwards, talk to people and be in their lives so that they're okay with the prophetic. So if I was just prophetic and just going like, hey, you know, we should see this. And I didn't have like a pastoring heart to where I'm like, I also need to hear this. I'm with you. Then it would come across as though I'm just like preaching with a megaphone while doing my art. And so instead I try to be with people before the service and after the service. And I try to have conversations about that art so that it's not just like, whoa, this came out of the blue. And then within that, I let them, if they struggle with that idea or that thought, like actually listening and having a conversation about it, because the point is not to sing about a subject and then it's over. The point is, if I'm bringing up a subject, is to get a conversation started. Mm -hmm. And then from that conversation, 
what is our point of action? It's lighting a match. It's just the beginning of it. It's not just the end, like, okay, now we sing about a social injustice. It's done. It's all good. No, 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 no. The songs are meant as in anything within our songs. And that's the same with worship. It's not just like, hey, I came and I sang a worship song. Now I'm good. No, 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 no. The whole point of the music is to embody and reflect the theology and philosophy that we have. And a lot of times, most of the time, we're not there. And so we sing these songs so that it can be a starter for us to actually self-interrogate and move towards those kingdom ethics, which would be if we're singing about justice or we're singing about mercy or we're singing about whatever subject that we're singing about, realizing that like we are so full of it If we think that like, yeah, we're just, we're on the good side, like, no, 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 no. The whole thing is always a point of self-interrogation, always a point of, I need mercy. Usually within, if I was going to use like scripture, it'd be like, I grew up hearing parables and whenever there was a hero, for instance, the parable of the good Samaritan, I'd always think, okay, the church is the, the good Samaritan. Like, no, we're the person in the ditch needing help. And the thing is, the Mormon Samaritan or the Jewish Samaritan or the atheist Samaritan is going to actually be there to save you. And that's a very weird, hard place to be in as a church. And yet, when you take that place of humility and that posture of openness that the stranger, that the the unintelligible is God, is the divine, you end up being in a place where you're always coming from a place of humility. And I feel like the church, specifically through worship and through different truths or things that we try to hold, is we think that we own them. You don't own that. You don't own the truth. Which is a weird thing to say, because you don't own Christianity. And that's really hard, because we try to uphold the truth, and we try to do that. However, we go, you don't own justice. God owns justice. God owns the truth. And do you think you own God? Mm. And you go, no, you don't own God. You try to submit and worship and love and embody these things that have been revealed to us. But just because they've been revealed to us still does not mean that we are in charge of them. We believe that God is in charge. And so from that posture, it's a posture of humility and you sing these songs. And why would you even sing songs about a God like that? It's because we realize we don't own that truth, that somehow the Holy Spirit And God, when we talk about the ethics of Jesus, when we talk about the creator of the universe, Yahweh, all of these things, is that our hope is that by the Spirit, our hearts are changed. Our hearts are shaped. Our our minds are molded, as Paul would say, that we are a new mind within Christ, that our conscience is now shaped to a place of um, it embodies the love of God for our world and for our neighbors and for ourselves. So for anybody listening right now, I want you to rewind the last two and a half, three minutes and listen to it about four times because <laughs> there's so much in there and yeah. so many good things. David, that was so well said. One of the things that you were talking about towards the front end that I appreciated was the idea of the relational capital that you have, that as an associate pastor in a smaller congregation, 
that you're doing the self-interrogation and you're doing that in the community so that they see that, so that you're not standing apart as this celebrity person on stage, but you're a part of the community who happens to serve a given function in that community. But really, the most important place for you sounds like it's just being a member of the community. I mean, you happen to use your gifts, but you're just a part of that community. And I think so many congregational leaders could learn a lot from that, that you have so much more credibility from the stage and from the front when you have the relational capital with the people who are sitting in front of you that you speak to or sing to week in and week out. I think that's such an important point. Yeah, I I learned that from my father as a pastor. And, you know, it it sounds silly. And on one end, it almost sounds like political and I don't mean it to be, but it's like, are you known and touching people? Are you, and during COVID, that's obviously hard, but like, are you shaking hands? Are you actually available? It's hard at a larger church sometimes, especially if you're doing multiple services, what happens is you may be in a green room or you may be backstage getting ready because you feel like this is my gift to the people is just your gift. And, you know, your talent is kind of like fingernails where if your ego goes, listen, I'm a man that likes to get a mani-pedi, but if your fingernails go unchecked, You know, if you go crazy long fingernails, people are like, that is weird as all get out. And that's what happens with people's egos in ministry a lot of times where it's like, man, it goes unchecked. And that thing just gets weird where it's like, why do you think you're a rock star? Or why do you think as a pastor, you're this thing that is just so the antithesis of like what the church is supposed to be about. And we've all seen that with people where that can get weird. But then there also is like, there is room for people's gifts and people's talents. So that's where it's like, what is the balancing act here to where you're like, okay. And there are some times where you may, you know, if you're serving a ton, you do need to like take care of yourself. It's a relational thing and it's a living thing. That's the same thing. You know, if I was in a a friendship, you know, I've got deep, great friends here in the city and sometimes they want to hang out and I say, no. I can't hang out right now because I've been so busy. I need to kind of recharge. And then at the same time, we try to meet weekly at least. Why? So we can maintain our friendship and our relationship. So it's an active living thing. And I feel like for pastors and for people who serve in church, like, of course, I'm not trying to just say like, go, 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 and do this thing where you just burn out. No, I'm not trying to just say that especially relationally, because that can also be manipulated and weaponized to where you're hanging out with people every night and you never have time for your family or for that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, are you actively trying to, especially if you're using art to be prophetic or preaching to be prophetic, are you with the people loving and showing that you too have not arrived and you too are actually a part of the community that is actively trying to self-interrogate and actively trying to have conversations to listen, understand. As we wrap up here in a few minutes, I'm wondering if you have any just practical advice, like is there one or two pieces of practical advice when it comes to the literal production of a worship musical experience that you would offer to those that are leaders in that way? Well, on one end, what is your history? What is your story? What are you tapping into that really resonates with the people? So our congregation is very young. So we have the exciting thing of kind of being able to shape that. However, for worship 
experiences. Some of mine, you know, as a musician is like, I don't usually like going to modern worship services personally. I love things that either if it's musically could be something that is like a choir or more classical style or even no music. Like if you've ever been to something where you've experienced a congregation that doesn't have music, I can love that worship experience. It doesn't just have to be a certain style, but it comes from a tradition. And do you know that tradition and why? And then if you do know that tradition and why, and you want to expand and grow, it then becomes a question of why is this rule in place before, you know, this is the old, like Chesterton thing where it's like, if you see a fence before you remove it, can you tell us why it's there? But then once you know why it's there, if the purpose is a specific reason, you might be able to do something creatively or artistically that actually does it better than what the fence is there for. But the only way that you get there is if you first know why it's there. So for instance, let's say that you're in a very contemplative type of community that really values silence. You can obviously just be silent and that's cool. Or you can try to lead people to a place to where they get to silence. And then when you get to that silence, it's even more like, wow, we got here. And so sometimes you can do that musically. Sometimes you can do that through a breath prayer. You know, you're leading someone. So I'll give you an example of within my church, we value silence, but because we're in such a busy place, people don't know how to be still. And so what we'll do is we'll together be like, hey, we're going to focus this morning on our breath together. And I say, when you breathe in, breathe in the grace and mercy of God. And when you exhale, exhale all anxiety. And then maybe while they're doing that breath, I give them a scripture. And they're literally doing like teaching them how to do a breath prayer. And then eventually we're totally silent. Now, the reason why I do that is because some people just cannot handle silence at first, right? It's too much. It's too loud. The silence is too loud. But if they have something to meditate on and you're doing it together in a group, it can be really helpful. So being a practitioner of what is the point of why I'm trying to do whatever it is I'm trying to do in a spiritual way. And then if I know that, how can I do that creatively? So if that's to get people to sing, if I'm singing in way high keys all the time and everyone can't sing, but I sound great, but everyone else can't sing. It's probably not the best of reason of like, well, let's all sing together. I'm a super high tenor. I'm going to be singing high G's and A's the whole time. Be like, people can't sing that. So how do you get to a place where people can't sing? Or it's the same thing with harmonies, where a lot of times if I'm trying to teach people how to sing a harmony, either do it within a congregation or I'll say, pick a note and sing it as loud as you can. And it's probably going to be off key but that's okay. And people will laugh and then they'll actually try to sing harmonies. Mm. And the reason why you do that is like, you have something where like you're trying to get out of just the rut you're in creatively that you always do the same thing to try to get to this place, but you kind of get, you hit a ceiling. Yeah. It's like, well, let's talk about what we're trying to get to and how we're trying to get there, but then come up with creative ways in which we can teach people how and have a place that it's okay to fail. I feel like creatively, that is one of the best lessons is like, we are a place where it's safe to fail. If you don't have a place that is safe to fail, people won't actually try to do anything creatively. Another way to put this is only the mediocre 
are always at their best. Mm. Meaning if you always do whatever you do at your best and you're like, well, I know how to do this one thing. Well, you're only going to be mediocre, but those who actually are really good at things learn how to fail and they learn how to do things where it's like we creatively can fail. And so that's where I'd be like, if you want to do anything creatively, have a place that's safe where we laugh at failure, where we go, we tried that didn't quite work, but like you get back up, you dust yourself off and you keep going. And that's how you get better at whatever craft you have or whatever type of artistic ability where it's like your taste is good. You know that it's not that good yet, but you keep on going. You do it a lot of times so that you get better because your taste isn't bad. It's what gets you in the game. Such good advice, David. Thank you for that. For folks listening, if they want to follow you and follow your work, where can they do that? Uh, They can follow The Brilliance at The Brilliance Music on Instagram or follow us on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. For Good Shepherd, we have a thing called The Good Shepherd Collective you can check out, which is a lot of amazing musicians, a lot of great music. And my church in New York is Good Shepherd New York. Awesome. David, big fan of The Brilliance, and thank you so much for your thoughtfulness around what you do. Everything that you shared today was so helpful and relevant, and I know our listeners are going to really appreciate it. So thank you for continuing to create, to innovate, to give yourself and others permission to fail as you do it. So important. So really, really appreciate your time here today. Thanks, man. Thank you guys so much, Matt and Ben. It was great talking to you. Thank you. So I don't know about you, Matt, but that interview went places I wasn't really expecting it to go up front. And so as I'm sitting here processing, what are some of the key things that you're reflecting upon as we come out of that interview? One of the first things I noticed was just your question about how the music of the brilliance impacts the congregation and vice versa. And it was so interesting to just hear David talk about the interplay of his gifts, talents, and abilities and how it's not like there is a separate application of that in the brilliance and in congregation. I mean, he did talk about how there's a little bit of differentiation now in some of the language that they use, but basically, you know, he's bringing himself to the congregation and his gifts and skills and just how that's a refreshing change that it's not like you have to exist one way in the world in what you do and then exist in a different way in the congregation, but he's an integrated whole person in both places. And man, that's just such a cool thing to see that happening in the congregational life. Because in my past experience, there's just very much a difference between sacred and secular. Mm. And that's a word that kept going through my mind throughout this whole interview was the idea of integration, that they're really an integrated congregation in so many ways. What is so fascinating to me is that you just brought up this point about the integration of sacred and secular. And it's fascinating because this came up in 
episode two of season three, when Shelly and I interviewed John Ray, she pointed out the same thing in John's context about the integration, about that delineation between sacred and secular being much less pronounced than she was used to it being. And so the fact that David is the second interview we've done in this theme of worship in a very different context than John is ministering in, and yet still we notice a different type of delineation between sacred and secular. And so I think it's beautiful that it keeps coming up, and it's beautiful that it's coming up in multiple contexts and cultures, and it feels like an invitation for us to consider how we can blur those distinctions in our own lives, in our own contexts, our families, our communities. It just feels important. Like I mentioned in episode two, it aligns with my theology, but I also think there might be an invitation towards a deeper freedom of relationship when you can remove that hard line between what is supposedly sacred and what is supposedly secular. And if nothing else, to your point, it's an integration of yourself. And when you can bring your whole self integrated into a space, a relationship, a community, a congregation, then I think that space is better for it. Yeah. And just in case any listeners are rolling their eyes, I haven't listened to the prior episode yet. (laughs) We're recording this before it launched. So this was genuinely serendipitous. This is not a setup. (laughs) Right. Which is why I was so excited because you weren't even in the interview. Right. It was just me and Shelly and we recorded the back end content literally just yesterday. And so so you had no idea. And yet this is naturally coming up again. And so that tells me that there's something at play in this theme that is worth paying attention to. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see this idea of integration. I think it's something that has been missing from congregational life, at least in the Christian sphere, because each faith tradition has kind of gone its own route. And I think that's what happens when you don't have opposing voices in the same room, that you tend to move along your stream and diverge from other streams. And what I mean by that is in the conservative framework that I grew up in, it seems like the goal of Sunday is to get you out of the world, to remove you from it. And so things tend to be much more focused on the character and nature of God and ways that we need to focus on him, which of course is good and right, but sometimes it's missing the human element of what we are bringing into the service ourselves in the problems that we're encountering or our humanity. And I think that can come from an overemphasis on the divine, but I've heard people from progressive circles talk about the opposite being true, that sometimes it just seems like it's completely and solely focused on the people and what they're dealing with, what they're struggling with, and only their humanity and not focusing on the divine enough. But seeing what David's talking about, there's an integration of those two things that's really beautiful and just part of the faith tradition in general. And it's a matter of remembering to focus on both of those things, that both sides are important, who we are, how we live life on a daily basis, weekly basis, but also what our faith tradition is calling us to. And that the worship service should be a reflection of both aspects of that, not necessarily just one or the other. Yeah, and I think there is a line, you know, that we're talking about that at least I feel we want to try to straddle, and it's the line between, you know, the holding enough mystery and holding enough of the mundane, or holding enough of the sacred, holding enough of the secular, because life is always both. They're always intermingled, always co-mixed, and when you get too far into one or the other for too long, you start to miss something. And so I hear you talking about, and I heard David talking about, and I heard John talking about, and Shelley trying to kind of live into that line as community. You know, doing it as an individual is one thing. Doing it as community, collectively, there's a lot more variance that's going to take place. And you've got to be able to hold variance with each other, for each other, alongside each other, with grace, so that 
together, you can kind of on average or on the mean navigate that line and experience the full potential of both what is sacred and what is secular. And I just theologically, sometimes I wonder if there is even that distinction in God or the divine. Right? I feel like it might just be a human creation sometimes. I don't even know if God thinks about sacred versus secular. It just it all is. But that's, you know, another question for another day. One of the things that excited me most about this particular interview, and y'all are going to laugh, but it's true, is when he mentioned that sometimes they bring food trucks in. My mind was blown. My spirit rejoiced uh, like Mary's did when Jesus was in the womb. I mean, I was just like, yes, this is the kind of vision I I need in my (laughs) life right now. (laughs) Um, And it, it wasn't just because it's something different and it wasn't just because I love food. I do. Don't get me wrong. But I think I understood it and understand it as a reimagining of what it means to come to the table, a reimagining about what it means to create community in a different way, in a different space, in a different method. Because I'll tell you, I as a person am much more likely to kind of stay and mingle and engage with folks if there's a food truck that's going to show up, you know, once a month after worship. And I get not everyone has the means to do that. I'm not saying that's the route you have to go, but but when you can think about what might be a, a typical element of your service, say it's a quarterly potluck right, or communion once a month, and how might you reimagine that briefly in a way that's going to captivate people and, and pull more people in? And that's what I heard when he talked about having that food truck present. So it wasn't just me envisioning tacos after service on Sunday. I was envisioning a community that's willing to engage additional parts of myself that maybe normally aren't engaged during a Sunday service. And then that's going to awaken enough in me so that I can bring more of myself into the space and thus engage more of someone else. So those are the reasons that that particular piece excited me. It was part of the spirit of reimagination that I heard David continually talk about in his context and that they try to cultivate in his congregation. And that I think comes across in his music, whether he's doing it in his service or whether they're doing it for the brilliance. I think that reimagination just seems to be a a core foundation of various aspects of ministry. Yeah, I jotted notes down about that specific part of it too. And what struck me was him talking about matching the activities of the congregation with the goals of the community. And he even talked about that with like the music. He said, look, the music is not the point. The music is what leads us to the table. So for them, the sacrament of the Eucharist is kind of the central component of the service and everything else is in service to that. But a natural outflow of that is being brought together in the Lord's Supper, but then that flows then out into eating as a community together, right? And so it's just the thoughtfulness of that whole thread from the beginning of the experience to the end of the experience. And to our earlier point of sacred versus secular, you look at, you know, it's a food truck, right? Like this is, you know, it's a secular, like, hey, we're getting some food together. But it's not. For them, it's a sacred moment, a sacred piece of their service because it's a natural outflow of what they've been led into and what they're being led out of in that service. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I couldn't help but wonder as I was listening Because when we designed this, when we were putting our schedule together, we intentionally wanted to do two episodes generally about worship, right? And so I'm wondering for those that were worship leaders that were listening to this, you know, what their main takeaways were going to be, what stood out to them, what are they going to bring into their congregational context? And I think there's a lot of richness in there. And I'm just curious and also excited about the multiplicity of ways that Hopefully, people were sparked by hearing David and then before that, John. Awesome. So we hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. And next up, we'll talk resources. 
So Matt, what resources stood out to you today that might be helpful and applicable to this interview that we just listened to? Yeah, the first resource was an article that I found called 10 Steps to Kill Your Church Show and Create a Participatory Liturgy by Chris Morton on freshexpressionsus.org. And Fresh Expressions is, I think, an outgrowth of the United Methodist Church and ways that they want to help their congregations kind of understand and reinvent themselves. But I really appreciated this article. And for those of you who are not used to the term liturgy, it literally just means work of the people. That's literally the root of it. Going back to etymology, man, we're hitting etymology in this episode. Heavy today. (laughs) Heavy on the etymology. Love it. But it basically just means like the order of how you do your service. So even if you are a congregation that doesn't use the term liturgy, you have a liturgy, probably. You have a typical flow of how your service works. And so that's really all that means. So don't let that scare you away from this article. But it's a brief article that just talks about ways to think through theological, contextual, participatory questions of crafting a service around the types of things that you want to accomplish in your gathering. And I think it's just a really powerful and low investment resource that I think will just kind of help you think through what liturgy do you have right now and what are some ways that you might be able to tweak and refine that to do some of the things that we've been talking about in this episode of just incorporating more gifts and skills of your congregation, perhaps, or just thinking about bringing in more humanity or more divinity and just ways to kind of put those things together in your congregational service. Yeah, I can see why that would be really helpful for congregations. Sometimes it's really nice to have someone kind of help us hold a mirror up to ourselves so we better understand ourselves and then learn how we want to or need to adapt. So I'm glad you're bringing that today. One other thing I want to mention about this is that they do also have some links to some other resources, and it's a really ecumenical kind of resource list. It's denominational hymnals, Quaker meeting guides, Catholic mass, the Anglican book of common prayer, and the Methodist order of worship. So there's a lot of good meat here and ways to get good ideas for your congregation. Sweet. That's exciting. Thanks for bringing that. And I only have one resource for today. I've been in the habit of just finding one resource I really like and sticking with it. And that's going to continue today. And the resource that I found is the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. And I think as I was reflecting upon why I liked this particular resource, I think it's because they remind me of us, Matt, if I'm being honest. They offer resources for congregations and congregational leaders that want to learn more about worship. So there might be books, you know, about sermons or books about hymns. There might be a podcast episode on public worship and the Christian life. It might be a resource about anti-racism and leadership. They just have a good list of resources for those that want to be resourced, that want to learn more and cultivate their knowledge base. They also, like us, offer grants to congregations around worshiping communities. And the grant program, or the grant that I saw online, was one about cultivating a public worship space. And that really excited me. And so if you're interested in doing something imaginative and innovative in your community around the concept of worship, check out the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship and see if you might be eligible for a grant. And if you are, I encourage you to apply. Because it seems like they're in the position to help foster and cultivate and even maybe bring to life the things that you are imagining. So so check them out. Yeah, I've always heard good things about that organization and talked to, I think, one or two congregations that have worked with them and just heard some really good things. So yeah. I do also want to mention that the grant amount, you know, so I mentioned that the Calvin Institute awards grants and the grants generally range from 5000 to $15,000. And on occasion, they will award a grant up to $18,000 if it meets the right parameters and has the right type of collaboration that they're looking for. So 
this isn't a small amount of money. They've got a decent amount of change they can help offer in order to bring your vision to life. Nice. Thanks, Ben. That sounds like a really good find. Yeah. Do you have anything else for us today? Yeah, I got one more from the Lewis Center for Church Leadership, and it's called 50 Ways to Increase Active Engagement. And again, this is an article that just kind of goes through ways to get people actively involved in your congregation. And I thought of this just because, as David talked about their congregation and the active involvement, and he mostly talked about aspects of the liturgy. But again, your congregation may not necessarily have a ton of people who are artistically talented, although you probably have more people than you think you do. But there are all kinds of other gifts, talents, skills, and abilities in your congregation. And just I am passionate about seeing communities being able to use the gifts and talents of everybody involved. And I think this article does a great job of these 50 tips, and it breaks it down into the topic areas of motivate, communicate, organize, connect, equip, and affirm. Hmm. And so just different tips about each of those sections, and it just might be a good jumping off point for a leadership team, a board, or a session group to kind of go through and figure out how do we maybe take some of these tips and get some greater buy-in and corporation of our community's gifts and talents into our broader community. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing a resource that focuses specifically at the leadership level. Because again, when we think about worship, we can have a very narrow focus. But if you know, if you're in any form of leadership in a congregation, you're wearing many different hats. And so being able to identify resources that are going to help you or touch on each of those hats, each of those skill sets, each of those areas of responsibility, I think is really crucial. So I'm glad that you brought that today. So having said that, we really appreciate y'all listening today, and we hope that you enjoyed this interview and this conversation as much as Matt and I did. If you have additional resources that you're looking for, feel free to check out the CRG website. That is T-H-E-C-R-G.org. And that's just a clearinghouse of resources that we have vetted and cultivated and curated specifically for your use. If you don't find what you're looking for, you can always reach out to us. You can find our contact information at the Center for Congregations.org. We're happy to help you find the resources that you're looking for. And if you have resources that you think apply to this topic that you want us to be aware of, feel free to email us. We love to learn about new resources and we're a limited staff, so we can't always keep up with the resources that are being used and and are hot right now. If resources can be hot, I'm not sure. And so, yeah, email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org and we'd love to just see what you got. Yeah, and Ben has told me that um, I'm coming across a little desperate in the appeals to the podcast at centerforcongregations.org account. So we're just going to leave it at that today. So we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you, yes. So also, we'd ask you to rate and review us on iTunes. That's the best way to get other people involved and in the know about our podcast and just a way to spread the word. So just click that five-star button, and we'd love for you to leave us a review just to hear what you're thinking. And as always, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at centerforcongregations.org. We post links to resources there. We highlight congregational stories so that you can see the good things that are happening in Indiana congregations. And we also update you about upcoming events that you might want to participate in. So feel free to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And we want to say a big thank you to our funder, the Lilly Endowment. We're able to do the work that we do based on their generosity. We also want to thank Jaden Lee, who's our podcast producer, editor, All the great music you hear during this episode and all of our other episodes are creations of his, and we very much appreciate him making us sound amazing. Yes, thank you so much, Jaden. With that being said, y'all, thanks again for listening to this week's episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. We've got more great content, more great guests, and more great episodes coming up during season three, so keep listening in. See you soon, everyone. 